Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We'll be there in just a few moments. I'll add my welcome to you all. Thank you all for being here. It's always good to be together, especially on the first day of the week, as we can come together and worship our God and do those things that we have been commanded to do, how we have been shown to do in the New Testament. And that is indeed our purpose for this congregation is to hold to that pattern that has been established through God's word. And we pray that our efforts will be along those lines. And I pray that my words to you this morning will be from scripture. It will be godly, will be as the oracles of God, as Peter writes in his epistle. And you'll be my brother or my sister in correcting me if indeed I speak out of turn and say something that has not already been said by the Word of God. I don't normally give lessons based on worldly holidays. It's not necessarily a conscious decision. It's just my mind doesn't... I kind of have, believe it or not, there's, there's, there's method in my madness of how these sermons come together. And a lot of times I'm just not necessarily thinking about worldly holidays. But... We are in December now, and we have one of the biggest religious, quote, holidays coming up at the end of this month, and that is Christmas. And that is when most of the world at least recognizes the birth of our Lord. And while there's lots of error, uh, of course, that, that's there, and we're going to touch on that this morning, uh, the, the main reason that I, I bring a lesson like this to you is that religious error must not be ignored. Jude, in verse 3, it reminds us that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. It is our job as Christians, it is my job as a proclaimer of God's word to contend earnestly for the faith. And so as we see religious error, we are to indeed refute it the best we can. The truth must be powerfully and passionately proclaimed. This is indeed the word of God, and it is worthy of our attention, and it is worthy of our adherence to it. And false doctrine must be refuted just as forcefully. As Paul is giving instructions to Titus as to the qualifications for elders, he says there in Titus 1 and verse 9, he says about elders that they holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he, talking about an elder, may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So you see a, a child of God and, a, and a, a mature man of God must be able to both preach and teach sound doctrine and refute false doctrine. So that is at the heart of my purpose this morning in the lesson that I'm going to bring you. I want to talk this morning about, indeed, the, the birth of our Lord. A Savior has been born to you. What a wonderful tiding that is, and we'll get to that in a moment here in Luke 2, but just think about, as the angel is proclaiming to those shepherds that there has been born for you a Savior. What wonderful news that is. And this morning I want to spend some time 
addressing the real importance of Emmanuel. And we'll talk about that word, that title, that name as we go forward. But there is indeed importance in the birth of our Lord. There's also, as we've mentioned, a lot of falsehoods that exist out of the religious world. And I want to take just a few moments to talk about a few of those. We're not going to dwell on them because the point of our lesson and, and what we'll get to is what Scripture says. What Scripture says about Emmanuel. But a few things that we might consider about the Christmas story, and I put that in quotes, some falsehoods that exist. First of all, let's understand that Christmas the celebration of such is completely man-made. We don't have any scripture that tells us that we are to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, we have scripture that talks about the birth of Jesus. Quite detailed. Luke's account is quite detailed. Matthew's account is, picks up a, a little bit later in the story after Jesus has been born. We have quite a bit of detail about it. But the celebration of Christmas is not authorized in Scripture. And in fact, what has become Christmas as we know it is really a combination of a lot of customs from a lot of different cultures. From Roman culture to German culture to uh, Nordic culture, all these things have kind of just been mixed in. And that's the uh, holiday that we celebrate these days. Another thing to understand is that the date, December 25th, is completely arbitrary. Scripture does not give an exact date. Now, it tells us a time frame. Luke tells us about um, kings and governors, and, and Matthew tells us about uh, Caesar. I might have those backwards. We'll, we'll correct me here in just a moment. Scripture doesn't give an exact date. The first... As far as scholarly, we can kind of tell when this, the birth of our Lord started to be recognized is around 336 A.D. or so, after Christianity is recognized as the official religion for Rome, it starts to be celebrated. So that's some 300 years after our Lord's death. And here's something I didn't really realize but in my research turned this up. In the United States, it, Christmas wasn't recognized as a federal holiday until 1870. According to my math, it's about 150 years ago. It's not that long ago. Up till then, you know, we have a, a religious um, establishment of this country, people coming here for religious freedom. And a lot of those people didn't recognize the birth of our Lord as a holiday. It wasn't until later on that this became a practice and in 1870 made a a national holiday in our country. There's some slogans floating around out there. I'm sure you've heard some of these. Jesus is the reason for the season. And you've probably also heard this one, that let's put Christ back in Christmas. Now, uh, some of this goes to, to talk about the over-commercialization of the holiday, and some of that along those lines, I might have some agreement. It seems that all we're doing is spending money during this time putting up decorations and, and having get-togethers and buying presents and all those kinds of things. And I'm not going to beat up any one part of those things. It's, it's what we engage in doing. But understand this. Jesus is not the reason for the season. Put Christ back in Christmas. Brethren, Christ never was in Christmas. 
as we recognize these are man this is a man-made holiday. A lot of the things that are celebrated during this time are man-made. There's a melding of uh, pagan and, and spiritual um, festivities during this time frame. And that's where the real danger exists when we blur those lines and forget that Scripture speaks of the Lord's birth, but Scripture doesn't speak of celebrating the Lord's birth as a holiday. I want to just do one little uh, refuting of, of something here. We've heard this all our lives, probably haven't we? The three wise men visited Jesus in the manger. You see nativity scenes, you'll see the shepherds there, and you'll see the wise men with their gifts, bringing them to the Lord in the manger, right? We're there in Luke 2. Let's do some reading. Luke 2, beginning in verse 8. It says, and in the same, uh, in the same region, uh, let me back up. Verse 1 of, of chapter 2. Now it came about in the days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census would be taken in all the inhabited earth. That helps us to understand the time frame. And I did get this backwards. It's Luke that tells us about Caesar. It also tells us in, in verse 2, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. It tells us some more leadership. Matthew is going to tell us about the king in Judah, which was a region at that time of the kingdom of Rome. But down to verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. And they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, but behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone from there into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened with the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And we had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the image which, uh, which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things up, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just had been told them. So in that story, that reading there, who was it that visited Jesus in the manger. It was the shepherds, right? It was the shepherds, the ones who had been told by the angel that indeed, this day, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. Let's go over to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 2. As I mentioned, uh, Matthew speaks more about the time after Jesus is born. At the end of, of chapter 1, it speaks about Jesus being born to the Virgin Mary. And in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, there's the recognition of who was king in, in 
uh, Jerusalem at that time. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the priests and the scribes of the people, we began to inquire of them where this Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, so it has been written by the prophet, And in you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, or by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, these wise men, and asserted for them the time the star appeared, ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the Christ, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went on their way, and lo, the star which had been seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house, and they came into the house, and saw the child with Mary and his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed on their, own, to their, on their way to their own country by another way. How many wise men, how many magi were there? Scripture doesn't tell us. Now they had gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and so the legend has come about that there were three wise men, and each one had a separate gift. Scripture just says men. We also talk about, or the, the modern story talks about how the wise men came and visited Jesus in the manger. Did you hear anything in that story about the wise men coming to see Jesus in the manger? In fact, it says they went into the house where the child was. And then we begin in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, in talking about the things that happened after Jesus' birth. This is how things get wrong. Excuse my terrible grammar. This is how things devolve. Story, the lines get blurred. Little facts get changed. Probably unintentionally and harmlessly with good intentions. But this is how these things happen. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about a couple of things. And we'll begin with this idea that there's a problem in inventing holidays. Let me start off by saying this. There is a place for man-made holidays. Go to Romans 4, as we're talking about this. You know, we celebrate holidays all the time. We just came out of Thanksgiving, right? Usually eat pretty good during Thanksgiving, right? Get together with family. We have all sorts of days that we set aside for various reasons. And there is a place for man-made holidays. It's a time for us to remember things, to memorialize things. There's nothing wrong with that. In Romans 14, beginning in verse 5, Paul is addressing some things here about Christians, about Christians in various stages of their development of faith. In chapter 14, in verse 5, he says, One man regards one day above another. Another man regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. 
And he who eats does it for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, does he not eat and give thanks to God? You see, men may set aside days and, and want to do something special on that day. Paul says, fine. Others see every day alike and see no need to set aside any day of their own for something special. That's all right. Look what it comes down to at verse 13. And we made this point recently under another lesson, but we'll make it again. Verse, 13, uh, verse 12, sorry. So then each of you shall give an account to himself for God. You see, what Paul is talking about is judging one another and judging one another unfairly because one might see something about foods and one may see something about days and they were judging each other super scripturally. Things that aren't in scripture and they were trying to judge and trying to bind things on each other. That's where we make the mistake. It may be that I set aside a certain day to do something, to remember something about something that happened in Scripture or remind myself about it, that's fine. But if I try to bind that on someone else, if I try to set up some kind of holiday and enforce something that Scripture has not enforced, that's where we run into trouble. That's where inventing holidays is a problem. Understand this. It's God that determines how he must be considered. God determines that, not man. He determines that. Look over in Luke chapter 9. We uh, considered this, we discussed this not long ago in our Sunday morning class on Peter. But here in Luke chapter 9, beginning verse 28, this is the account of the, of the transfiguration when our Lord is transfigured there, and, and the voice comes down out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And you remember the account there that it wasn't just Jesus that began to shine uh, with, with, with light, but there was also walking with him two other men who turned out to be Moses and Elijah. And there in verse uh, 32, it says, Now Peter... And his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw the glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. We've talked extensively about Peter and, and his zeal and his willingness to be on the front line of anything. So here's, it's not out of character for Peter to say something like this. It's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this is not out of character and not out of sync with the way the Jews operated. They, they built a lot of tabernacles and memorials and things along the way. We see that in Scripture. And in and of itself, not necessarily wrong. But when not authorized by God, that's when the problem is. And look at the end of verse 33. It says, not realizing what he was saying. You see, in this whole episode that's, that's going on here, this is a, uh, if you will, a passing of the torch, a changing in the law. Moses and Elijah are not there just by happenstance. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Remember what Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. 
And so we have the, the law and the prophet, the, the, the law and the prophets that are represented by Moses and Elijah. We see the passing of the, of the baton coming out of the old law and ushering in the law of Christ. That's what's important in the story. Not the, to memorialize these three by building these tabernacles, but to understand that this is the beginnings of the law of Christ, the ushering in of the law of Christ. So that's what's important. Look over in 2 Peter. As we see the lesson that Peter learned from, from this instance, this very instance. By the time Peter writes his, his letters here, he's much older in age. This is towards the end of his life. He's had the time under the, uh, the tutelage of our Lord. He's had the time to deliver that message there in Acts chapter 2 on the, first, on the day of Pentecost. He's had time to... To, to, to spread the gospel, to be involved in all of that. And now he's coming towards the end of his life and he's writing these letters. Look what he says there in 2 Peter 1, beginning of verse 16. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales which were made known to you uh, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Understand what Peter is saying here. We're not following cleverly devised tales. Doesn't that not sound like what we're talking about in our lesson this morning? Cleverly devised tales of men. Peter's saying, we're not, that's not what we're following here. We are eyewitnesses of these things, and this is what we're telling you. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as the utterances that were made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance and made, made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we had the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's where we get our authority. Holy, the men moved by the Holy Spirit. Spoke from God. We don't get our authority from cleverly devised tales or from man-made holidays. We get our authority from the Word of God. There's another aspect of this in the idea of the, the, a danger in following men's traditions. There's warnings here. There's a danger that's involved also. Look over in Mark chapter 7. Our Lord addresses this quite pointedly, as a matter of fact. You see, during Jesus' time, there was this sect among the Jews called the Pharisees. And also another sect called the Sadducees. The Pharisees were ones that held to the letter of the law so far that they went too far, that they were binding things on their brethren that were not authorized from the law, from the law of Moses. And our Lord rebukes them for that, not just here, but other places. But here in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem, and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. 
And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Now, I stress that they, the example that they learn from the elders. They learn this from men. And they were taking the washing, the ceremonial washing of the priests, which is in the law of Moses, how they must cleanse themselves during the times of sacrifice. There are ceremonial washings that were to take place. But see, the Pharisees had taken it too far. And now they made ceremony out of washing their hands and washing these vessels, copper pots and all these things, and they made a ceremony out of it. Verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat their bread with impure hands. And look how our Lord addresses this, beginning in verse 6. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Doesn't that hit it right on the head of what we're talking about here? Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. You see, they were setting aside the, the commandments of God, and they were holding on to these things that they had learned from men that passed down to them. There's danger in that. There's a real danger in that. Verse 9. He was also saying to them, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of his father or mother, uh, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have uh, had been helped by, excuse me, is Corban, that is to say, given to God. What he's saying here is that the commandments is to, is to help your, to honor your father and mother and to help them in their need by extension. And when they're saying, Jesus said, well, we can't help them because we've set aside this money for God. And he's saying that's wrong. You're incorrectly doing that. Verse 12. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you move many things such as that. You see, the tradition superseded God's word. They were letting that happen. And there's a problem in doing that. There's a danger in following men's traditions. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 as Peter there and the apostles had, had been put in jail, been told not, to, not to, to preach the word of God. They'd been let out of jail by miraculous events, and they'd gone off, and the, 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 the elders of the, of the synagogue called them in and said, didn't we tell you not to do that? Didn't we tell you not to preach and teach in Jesus' name? It says there in verse 29 of Acts 5, it says about Peter and the apostles, they said, we must obey God rather than men. And that comes down to us, doesn't it, brethren? We must obey God rather than men. That's where we put our faith and our confidence. Not in the traditions of men, but in the word of God. 
the last part of our lesson this morning is understanding the real importance the real importance of Jesus' birth. We shouldn't shy away from it, brethren. It's in Scripture. Scripture tells us about the birth of our Lord. And understand a few things about this. He came into this world as was promised, as was prophesied. So his coming into this world is an important thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, it says, I will raise up a prophet from among you. And we know that that is speaking indeed of the coming of our Lord. And we know even far back in, even in, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when that first prophetic utterances were made about someone coming to bruise the heel and to bruise the head. Remember how we have discussed that about who that is. That's a messianic prophecy about the coming of a Savior. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, here's a prophecy. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and he will call his name Emmanuel. And she will call his name Emmanuel, excuse me. That's pretty specific, isn't it? That's prophecy, isn't it? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. So here's a prophecy about this coming one. Two very specific things in Isaiah 7, 14. A virgin will bear a child, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1, beginning verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, this is she has been engaged to Joseph, they have not consummated the marriage at this point. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a virgin will be with child. Verse 21, And she will bear a son, and you, shall call his, uh, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Continue on, verse 22. Now all this took place that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. You see, our... The birth of our Lord is very important because it was prophesied all these hundred years before. And here it is taking place exactly as it was prophesied. And not only that, but understand the importance of that name, Emmanuel. And Matthew tells us what that means. It means God with us. 
And that's very important in understanding Jesus' birth. God with us. How important are those three little words? Look over in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, a couple of verses here that, that, that reinforce the idea of Jesus being born in this world and the importance of it. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When the fullness of time came, God sent his son. You see, all the things had to come together at just the right time for Jesus to be born. All the conditions had to be right. And indeed they were. And Jesus came into this world. In Hebrews chapter 8, let's read a little bit more about the importance of our Lord coming into this world. Hebrews chapter 8, the Hebrew writer here is talking about a better ministry that comes through the law of Christ. In verse 7 he says, But if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. You see, the old law served its purpose. But there was coming a time when there was going to be another law, the law of Christ. And that's what the Hebrew writer's argument is throughout the whole book. In verse 8, it says, For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the, last, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He says there, and this is quoted from Jeremiah 31. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the relationship that God has always wanted. Even with the children of Israel. He was with them and they forsook him, as is mentioned here. But God has always wanted that relationship. He's always wanted to be with his people. And guess what? That is accomplished through Jesus Christ. The name Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus Christ was born into this world, born of a woman, born of the Spirit. He was both man and God in the body. And he was with man. And his ministry on earth has been documented for us. And then he left this earth. But guess what? When we surrender in the waters of baptism and raised up, out of that grave, we become a member of the kingdom. And Jesus Christ is with us still. We're in the kingdom. It's very important for us to understand this concept. Look over, look over in Revelation chapter 5. 
Revelation chapter 5. Now, as I've mentioned before, Revelation is, is John seeing things, these, these visions that have been given to him in the Spirit. And he's writing down things that he is seeing and hearing. Verse 9, it says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book, to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and this purchase of God with thy blood, um, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Speaking of Jesus, this is the speaking of Jesus here, of course. Verse 10, And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom we're talking about. Jesus Christ is the king. He's been made that. And now we're reigning with him. Those of us who have put on Christ. Those of us who have come into the kingdom. We are reigning together with our Lord. Over in chapter 11 of Revelation. Beginning of verse 15. The seventh angel sounded and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. This is speaking about um, Christ reigning, the, the enthronement of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to thee, O Lord, the Almighty, who art and was and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and the wrath came, and the time came, and the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Verse 19. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder and earthquake and a great hailstorm. There's imagery all through that, isn't there? But the idea is that Jesus Christ reigns. And the idea is that we reign with him. So when we talk about Emmanuel, that is God with us. What a wonderful blessing that we have to be in, in the kingdom, reigning with Christ. That's the relationship that God has always wanted. In Galatians 4 there, it talked about the fullness of time. When the fullness of time came, that's the time that God chose that Jesus Christ would enter this world. And the birth of our Lord is very important. It is that beginning of the reign of Christ. As he comes into this world, born of a woman. Scripture tells us much about the birth of our Lord. Tells us time frame, not exact date, but time frame. Tells us who was governors and Caesars and the king in Judah. Tells us about those shepherds that were out there in the field, how they came and saw Jesus in the manger, how these wise men came and visited Jesus. It tells, it connects the story into worldly history. So it's not just a story, as we might think of a fable, but indeed it's true. But scripture does not indicate a celebration of his birth. We're told of his birth, we're told great detail. 
And as I've hopefully laid out for you this morning, his birth is very important. The scripture doesn't give us any indication that we celebrate his birth. In fact, scripture tells us that we ought to celebrate, ought to memorialize his death. And we do that. We do that each first day of the week. We take it the Lord's Supper. We remember the death of our Lord. Is his birth important? Absolutely, for the reasons and others that we have talked about. But as far as a memorial goes, Scripture tells us to remember the Lord's death until he comes again. So when we come together each first day of the week, as we see from Scripture, that's what we do. And as children of God, we ought to always look to his word and follow it exactly. And not rely on the traditions of men, but rather on the word of God. Emmanuel, God with us. It's an important concept for us to understand. And it's an important relationship and a wonderful one. If you're not a child of God, if you're not in the kingdom, I would encourage you to become a child of God. There are things that God has done. There is a, a, a plan that he has put in place that we hear the word of God and then if we believe in it, we repent of our sins, confess that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, then we're a candidate for baptism. We can be immersed in the waters of baptism, putting on Christ. And we come up out of those waters a new creature, to walk in newness of life, to walk in the kingdom, and to be with God in this world. Until such time as we depart this world, and the judgment comes, and then hopefully what God will say to us is, enter into my rest, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you to become one. If as a child of God you are not following the, the law of God and relying on traditions of men, or your faith is... It's wavering. Make the necessary corrections in your life. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.